Hi, everyone. This is Steve Hargadon. It's Thursday, May 21st, 2009, and welcome to the Future of Education interview series. Our guest tonight is Chris Deedy. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Steve, and thanks to all of you for coming. Yes, this is a great crowd, a very active, participating crowd. We are glad to have you here. We want to thank uh, tonight our uh, interview series sponsors, KnowledgeWorks, who have created the 2020 forecast called Creating the Future of Learning. Uh, we'll give you a URL at the end of the show to go to, a fascinating document. We also want to thank Illuminate for providing this environment. If this is your first time in Illuminate, I want to give you a very brief tour just so you know what's going on. Across the top of your screen, you'll see a number of different icons. The ones that might be of most interest to you are the red X and the green check. Sorry, it's the left is the green check and then the red X. Those allow you to actually respond if Chris asks you a question. And I'm going to ask you a question now. If this is your first time in Illuminate, would you click on the green check at the top of your window? That will give us a sense of how many people are here for the first time. You'll see that those um, checks um, pop up next to your name in the participant window. At the bottom of that participant window, you have some other icons that you can use for responding. There's a smiley face, a clapping hand, a confused face, and then a thumbs down disapproval. Uh, you're welcome to use those to indicate uh, your response to something during the session. It's kind of a fun way to be interactive. When we get to Q&A, you can click on the hand with the green up arrow, and that's a way of raising your hand so that I can give you the microphone so you're able to talk. I'm going to take a two-second pause here because it looks like Gerald is trying to connect to the teleconference, and I need to set that teleconference up. And Chris, you're going to see a box come up on your screen. Please don't close it down, but it will establish the teleconference for Gerald there. Um, also, uh, on your screen, you have a chat window, and you can leave messages uh, for us or for each other in that chat window. You'll notice at the bottom where the Send button is, after you've typed a message in and you click Send, there's a drop-down box that allows you to send a message to someone else in the system. The other people in the chat will not see that, but Chris and I as moderators do actually see every chat, just so that you are uh, forewarned. Um, it's, uh, I like the an alternate view for the screen that gives you more room to view the chat. If you go up to View and Layouts, you can click on Wide Layout, and that helps you to see things a little bit more clearly. View, Layout, and then Wide Layout. If you think that you might like to ask Chris a question using the mic tonight, go up and do Tools, Audio, Audio Setup Wizard to configure your microphone. Otherwise, you're welcome to leave those questions in the chat. Okay, so I'm going to give you another chance to respond now. Those green checks next to those of you here for the first time, welcome. I'm sure glad to have you here. Uh, I'm now going to give you permissions to modify this map. And what you'll do is look to the left of the map, and you'll see a little wand with a, a red star at the end. And if you click on that and then click on the map, you can let us know where you're listening from. So I've just tried to click on Sacramento. Looks like we have... Canada, a couple in Australia, maybe Seoul again, or northern Japan. Hey, boy, look at this. This is a fun audience. Feel free to, uh, I know that some of you posted where you were listening from in the chat earlier. Feel free to do that again, or if you haven't done that, feel free to put in uh, where you're listening from, uh, the time, the temperature, or the weather. Those are fun things for us to know. 
Uh, it is important during the chat uh, to try and keep the chat on topic. We don't want to constrain what you do in there, but it can be distracting for the speaker if um, if there are questions or topics going on in there that are really uh, far afield from what we're discussing tonight. Okay, I'm going to move on. So our guest tonight is Chris Deedy. He's the Timothy E. Worth Professor in Learning Technologies at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. His fields of scholarship include emerging technologies, policy, and leadership. His co-edited book, Scaling Up Success, Lessons Learned from Technology-Based education, Educational Improvement, was published by Josie Bass in 2005. A second volume entitled Online Professional Development for Teachers, Emerging Models and Methods was published by the Harvard Education Press in 2006. So again, Chris, welcome and thanks for being here. Well, I'm delighted to be here. It's a fascinating time to be involved with these technologies, and I'm glad so many people are in the water with us tonight. <laughs> Nicely put. Um, so you've uh, sent me, and I've uploaded a pretty extensive slide deck for tonight. Before we start to look at that or drill down at all on it, would you can you give an elevator pitch for what you tell people you're teaching about? When somebody asks you, what do you do, what do you say? My elevator talk about what I do is technology, leadership, and policy. The technology is emerging technologies that give us the chance to transform teaching and learning and schooling. The leadership is understanding how to integrate and evolve those emerging technologies in a very conservative educational system at present. And the policy is the types of investments and um, general operating principles that enable leadership to emerge. So it's a little bit like a three-legged stool for educational improvement. Do you feel that we're in a really historic period of time? I have been doing this work with learning technologies for more than three decades, and I have never been more excited about the opportunities than I am at present. The combination of what's happened recently with Web 2.0 and with immersive interfaces, uh, both the virtual worlds interface and the augmented reality interface that's based on mobile wireless devices, is just extraordinary. At the same time, I don't know if there's ever been a time during those 30 years that I've been more concerned, concerned with the challenge of preparing kids for a 21st century that looks very different than the 20th, concerned with the economic meltdown and the implications for schools of trying to operate with substantially less resources. So it's sort of a high stakes time, high risk, high gain. Do you feel like there's, you have a slide in the deck that's a quote from Shakespeare where we get the phrase a sea change. Do you feel like this is an evolution or a revolution? And is, uh, is there the potential for humankind to change because of what we're seeing in these technologies? Well, the, the whole time that I've worked in the field, the, the more than three decades, 
Um, technology has been used much more to automate conventional models of teaching and learning and schooling than it's been used to innovate. And that's not because the potential isn't there to innovate. It's because of the human tendency to put old wine in new bottles. But I think some of the technologies we're seeing now, particularly those for knowledge creation and sharing and creativity and collaboration coming out of Web 2, don't really lend themselves well to teaching by telling and learning by listening. They're intrinsically based around much more active forms of learning that I think are much more powerful. So I'm hopeful that this next generation of technologies is going to be harder to use in conventional ways, but easier to use in ways that really open up a lot of possibilities. So I feel like my perspective on this was uh, informed by an interview I did last week with a gentleman named Mark Treadwell from New Zealand. But part of what I, th I think I saw in his interview was that this isn't about technologies which can be brought into the classroom and will transform teaching and learning as much as it's about a larger historic change in how we interact as human beings and how we learn and where we learn. And from his perspective, the, the pedagogies in schools have to change. And, and part of what I liked about that was that all of the things he said reminded me of the reasons why I was a liberal arts major in college. So I vacillate between the sense of this is something brand new and this is actually just a redefinition of something that was old that was good. Well, the, the pedagogies that uh, the emerging technologies enable are very old pedagogies. We've always known that they were more powerful for learning than uh, presentation and assimilation. But presentation and assimilation uh, were ways of ensuring uniformity in an industrial era and also ways of keeping costs down. Now that we're moving into an, a knowledge-based economy, um, the need for uniformity is being replaced by a need for creativity and diversity. And we still face challenges in terms of keeping costs down. But it's, it's pretty clear that we're spending a lot of money on a conventional educational system that really works very poorly. So trying to find a way to spend the same amount of money in a new model that might succeed more deeply with a broader range of students is really an exciting possibility. So another interview that I've done recently was with um, uh, Michael Horn from Disrupting Class. And, and I think I've heard that you've actually had Clayton Christensen come into your classes. Uh, I took away from that book that it was not likely that these transformative technologies would come in through the front door of schools. Are you seeing examples where you feel like they are in positive ways, or do you share that feeling that these things are going to happen on the fringes and the change will come from the outside? Well, I was one of many people that my colleague Clay Christensen at the Harvard Business School talked to in the course of he and Michael and, and other people putting that book together. And um, I used it as a text in my course this last fall in emerging educational technologies. And the first day of class, I said to the students, there are many things in this book that I don't agree with, but I think it's a very interesting framework for discussing opportunities for educational change. And so all of us 
wrestled with the book for about half the semester, keeping track of what we individually agreed and disagreed with. And then Clay was kind enough to come into class for a day, um, not to present, but to interact with us about suggestions for improvement in the book. I think the biggest single theme that came out from me and my students interacting with him, and I've had subsequent interactions with Michael and other members of the team, is that they framed online as the disruptive innovation. But really, customization, uh, tailoring to individual needs and interests, I think is the truly disruptive innovation. Getting away from that homogenization and the sort of one-size-fits-all approach of presentational teaching. And maybe that starts online because the disruptive technology model is that you start against competition while you're really, you start against non-consumption. You start in areas where there isn't competition in order to, to build up the efficacy of what you're doing to make your, your disruptive technology really powerful. But I don't think that online persists because one thing that a lot of innovators forget when they're designing wonderful new alternatives to schooling that are technology-based is that our educational system isn't simply a learning system or a socialization system. It's also a custodial system. And a big role for pre-college is just keeping kids safe when their parents are at work. And no matter how wonderful we get at online and out-of-classroom learning, and I think we are getting some very powerful methods of doing that, part of the educational system is always going to be to have this function of keeping kids safe. And that's an interesting design constraint on what we might imagine for these new models of schooling. So uh, did anybody in your class tell uh, Clay not to put those graphs in the book? That just uh, cracked me up because I, I couldn't even follow them. Well, I, I think Clay himself would admit that, that he would like to rewrite that book at this point and in response to the feedback that he's gotten from many people. Um, but I do think that even with its flaws, uh, the first half of the book in particular presents a very interesting way of framing why education hasn't changed thus far, despite the fact that so many people have worked so hard to get uh, schooling to evolve, and how technology might be able to play a role in helping us get out of that gridlock. Did you find a description of um, the, I'm trying to remember how they phrased it, but the, uh, the rationale that uh, um, the, in the absence of compelling social pressures to conform and be educated that there is this uh, need to, to engage the students. I'm, I'm blanking on how they phrased that, but I thought it was particularly insightful, at least for me, in terms of describing why certain uh, immigrant groups or why our country in periods of time was very supportive of sort of traditional forms of schooling, but now we find ourselves not able to um, to to operate in the same way. Do you, remember, do you know what I'm talking about? I do know what you're talking about, and engagement and motivation and flow is another subject that I've really been wrestling with. Um, this past spring, I taught a new course for me called Engagement and Learning, Technologies that Invite and Immerse, because I got tired of people saying, well, 
let's just make everything in education fun. And if we make everything fun, then kids are going to learn. In fact, there's a very rich literature on motivation and engagement in social psychology. And that literature talks about the fact that there are some kinds of fun that undercut learning and other kinds of fun that enhance learning. And so the design process for creating a productive form of engagement that's sustainable, that leads to intrinsic motivation to master different kinds of knowledge. If you look at the world through that lens about what we know about engagement and motivation, it would be difficult to design a system worse than our current model of schooling in terms of using all the wrong kinds of motivation to try to get kids involved long term. So Chris, I want to allow you to move into the slides. Um, certainly they're, they're text heavy and you won't be able to drill down uh, because of the time. But I'm interested in uh, what venues do you, in what venues do you give this material and what is it you're trying to communicate? Because you start off, I think, by helping to frame what the technologies are. I have used the slides that you're going to see in a number of venues, really beginning with the Florida EdTech Conference this past January, which was the first time that I gave the talk. And they did videotape that, and they used it in the virtual FETC, and I believe that that session is available online. So those of you who want to watch me give not the most polished version of that talk, but at least the initial version can probably track that down. There may be some more recent versions online as well of my taking the same slide deck and, and walking through it. But let me just um, frame a couple of the slides without trying to march through it to um, get at the essence of what I talk about. And then hopefully we can get the audience to to indicate what they're most interested in discussing tonight. Um, we talk about information and communication technologies, but information is so 1980s and communication is so 1990s. What these technologies are now is creativity, collaboration, and sharing technologies. As Wikipedia, a web two tool itself, defines web 2.0. And to explore this in my fall course, which had 47 students in it, um, we, uh, I created a category system that had 10 flavors of Web2 tools. And groups of four or five of the students self-selected which tools they wanted to study and worked together over a couple weeks to do several things, and I'll just show you the template for the first one of the tools, social bookmarking. So they together created a description of social bookmarking for learning or for whatever their other Web2 tool was for learning. And by co-created, I mean that they did this in a wiki. So they really edited together and collaborated on the writing and, and argued with one another about the wording to get it the way that they wanted. They also each contributed at least one example of an educational application of this medium. And of course, this is already dated because it happened last fall. And so six months later, there's all sorts of new stuff that's appeared. 
And then they raised a couple issues that they thought were concerns about that particular Web2 tool. So one of the products of that and part of the talk is this set of templates for looking at different Web2 tools and drilling down into each one of them to talk about their educational potential and some of the cautions that might come with that and a few examples of educational use. But the, the overall framework, uh, which is something that I developed retrospectively looking at, at what they had done, I think is also interesting because it really reads top to bottom. And so the implication is that people often start off on a fairly simple level just by sharing. They start to tag and share interesting stuff they find on the Internet with social bookmarking. They share photos or videos. They perhaps become part of a social network like Facebook and start to share themselves different aspects of themselves, slices of themselves that they want to portray. Perhaps they are creative in terms of generating products, and so they might participate in a writer's workshop like the Harry Potter fan fiction site and get a bunch of feedback from others. But as they get adept at sharing, people often move on into thinking together. So blogs and podcasts and online discussion forums, which sometimes are just one way and and broadcast, particularly with blogs and podcasts, are gradually becoming more and more interactive, more and more dialogues that are happening online. And then when people think together, they can get excited and decide to co-create something, co-creating ideas and a wiki, bringing together different data sets and co-creating some kind of a mashup, and uh, ultimately perhaps deciding to work together to change the world and developing some kind of bottom-up collaborative social change community. And in fact, I think the more powerful of the Web2 social change communities that we see now are very smart about picking and choosing tools from above them on the list to really empower the kinds of interactions that they create. So if you, if you buy into that notion of a category system and a developmental progression and ultimately an impact on the world, not just learning but doing, then I think it's very interesting to think about the role of Web2 in that context. Chris, a quick question came up about uh, somebody wanting to screen capture the slide. And I'm wondering if you'd feel comfortable with me actually posting the full slide set. And if not, just let me know afterwards, and I won't. But if you are, let me know, and I will put it on the uh, futureofeducation.com uh, event page. Um, I, I looked at the thinking category, and I was very interested because I thought that online discussion forums actually represented for me a, a significant difference in thinking from blogging. That online discussion forums were kind of co-thinking or collaborative thinking, whereas blogging, although there was give and take, still tended to be a very individual process. I think that, that what you're saying is, is true if the blogging is done by individuals who are using blogs in the way that, to date myself, long ago people used CB radio when they were driving around in their cars. And that died a rapid death when people realized that, that there were many people doing
CB radio who simply wanted to broadcast their thoughts on everything out onto the airwaves. But I think many teachers are finding creative ways to use blogging as a kind of, of deeper dialogue than you might get in an online discussion forum. So in a discussion forum, you might get a thought that's a paragraph long or a couple sentences long. In a blog, you might get a thought that's a page long. But you're right, this suffers from the flaws of any category system that tries to divide the world into three parts, tries to order things in a particular sequence, tries to pick tools that are evolving and maturing even as we speak and statically put them into some kind of relationship to one another. So I think this is an interesting place to start, but I certainly wouldn't present it as some kind of a finished um, summary of exactly where we're going to end up with Web 2. Does anyone have any questions for Chris at this time? If you do, please feel free to put them in the chat or to uh, click on the hand with the green arrow up and we'll give you the microphone so you can ask a question. And Steve, while we're waiting, I just want to say that I'm very comfortable with your making a PDF file of these slides and posting them. And, and in fact, my concern is to get the ideas out and discussed. And uh, the more broadly everybody wants to circulate this, the better. So Chris, do you see the question in the chat there from Janet English? Um, yes, I do. Um, to the extent possible at Harvard, I put my syllabi online. And so if you type into a search engine T545, all one um, word, and then something like engagement, learning, uh, my name, it should take you to one of the pages of my course site. And the syllabus for my course site has all of the primary source literature that we read in the class. I read with um, some of my students maybe 50 primary source articles out of the social science literature from which we selected about 8 or 10 that, that I thought were a good way of, of giving the class an experience with this and then all of us discussing it. Of course, that's a work in progress too, and I'd love for you to look at the syllabus and give me feedback on on where you think it could be improved. It suffers from the disadvantages that all of us have the first time that we teach something. But you are more than welcome to mine the syllabus and grab those citations and see if the articles are as useful for you as we found them in the teaching. Well, we're waiting for a question, Chris. Uh, Terry was uh, talking about back-channeling, and I wondered what your particular uh, view has been about allowing the use of computers and back-channeling. And you know, do you allow laptops open in your own classes? I do, and I'm in sharp contrast to a lot of my colleagues in that respect. I have two feelings about it. Uh, the first is that if I can't compete with email and surfing the web, I shouldn't be teaching anymore. So uh, I like to see students become progressively less and less involved with their laptops as the class progresses, not because I'm discouraging them from using them, but because they're very much caught up in what's happening in the room. Um, that said, 
I also find that it's terrific to have students in the room who will pick up on something that I'm saying, do a quick search, come back with something even more recent. Um, students who will you know, have a meta dialogue about the process that's happening in the room and perhaps at some point interject their thoughts about the learning process that's going on into the learning discussion. So I think back channeling can be very useful and if, if I'm in a setting where I see everybody staring into their laptops and clearly doing something else, it, it makes me think that whatever is going on doesn't have the kind of engagement and compelling character and, and utility that people in the room are seeking and, and that that's the fundamental problem, not that the laptops are available for back channeling. So Chris, ha having identified uh, those different types of social media, um, I think you go on to say that what we're calling Web 2.0 redefines uh, what, how, and with whom we learn. So is that the, the point you then make next? It is. So I, I do the gee whiz part of this where I talk about how excited I am and I um, show the different templates for the word to for the Web 2.0 tools, and I show a couple videos that illustrate um, how kids are using these tools outside of academic settings and really excited about them. But then this slide provides me an opportunity to talk about some of the cautions and some of the ways that the devil is in the details when we try to really harvest the value of these tools. So the first point, very simply put, is that it's relatively easy to learn to use any of these Web2 media in terms of doing something with it. In fact, if it were difficult to learn to use, typically it would just vanish from the scene. But it is not easy to learn to use a Web2 medium well. Because learning to use it well isn't simply a matter of technically being able to manipulate it. You have to be fluent in its rhetoric. So. We know that, for example, in online discussions, being an effective person in an online discussion requires a different rhetoric than being effective in a face-to-face -face discussion. And each of these tools has a different way of presenting material and presenting yourself to the other people interacting with it. And so I think a lot of the challenge of using this well in teaching is helping everybody build up their knowledge, not just of the tool, but of the rhetoric. The second point really refers to the fact that one of the byproducts of Web 2 is that you can find almost anything online in about 15 seconds. In fact, you can find five versions of it online, only one of which is accurate. Maybe a couple are biased. Maybe a couple are incomplete. And so you have to learn to distinguish which is which. And I think a lot of students of almost every age get confused because they don't understand why they're learning things in classrooms that they can instantly find. It just seems bizarre to them. And there are things now, many things that we're teaching that should be thrown out of the curriculum because of this second characteristic. So when I was growing up, I had to memorize the capitals of all the states in the United States, all 50 of them. No one should ever have to do that again 
because you can look it up in 15 seconds and because it's not foundational for any higher form of knowledge. But that's the key point is that there are things that we can look up in 15 seconds, like the number line, like the periodic table, like some of the fundamental precepts that underlie historical change. But just because we can look them up doesn't mean that we can understand them. They are foundational for higher knowledge. They are something that we really want to incorporate deeply into our thinking. And helping students differentiate and, and frankly, teachers differentiate the parts of the curriculum that we now shouldn't be bothering to teach and the parts of the curriculum that we should when both can be looked up easily is, I think, another one of the very interesting aspects of Web 2. And just quickly, the third point deals with epistemology. So the Encyclopedia Britannica, knowledge is constructed by experts, you know, professors at Harvard, getting together coming to consensus among their expertise, and then like Moses bringing down the Ten Commandments from the mountain, bringing down, quote, truth, unquote, to everybody else. That's the classic evolution of knowledge. Web 2 is almost the opposite. In Wikipedia, anybody can contribute to an entry. And entries are mature only when people stop arguing about them which means, of course, some entries like biological evolution will never be mature because people are going to argue about that indefinitely. But that bottom-up knowledge, while it has a lot of strengths, does require enough people who actually know what they're talking about to be willing to persist in those arguments so that the ultimate entry is accurate. And we have a whole generation growing up now that thinks of all knowledge as created in in this bottom-up way, in the same way that we had a generation before that, my generation, that thought all knowledge was created in the classic way. And I think helping students understand that both exist, that each has strengths and weaknesses, that really it's some kind of blend that's probably most powerful. So there is a middle point in the talk where I say, Web 2 is great, but wait a minute. There are some things we really need to think about when we get into the middle of it. And this is that slide. So Chris, what, um, how would you classify the meeting that we're currently have, having in this environment, which, which uh, is a combination of synchronous and yet um, non-physically proximate meeting. Do you, have you looked at uh, these kind of online meetings at all and thought about their implications? I have. Um, a course that I taught for 16 years that I'm no longer teaching because I'm shifting into things like engagement and motivation uh, was called Learning Across Distance and Time. And it was, of course, initially on distance learning and then on blended learning and then on really sort of Web 2. Um, and in that course, we looked at not only how each medium shapes its message, which is the issue with the rhetoric, but how each medium shapes its users, which gets into the issues with things like epistemology or about which knowledge is really important to know. And I think, I think that 
group meetings like this are transitional. Uh, they still have a strong component of older pedagogies like teaching by telling and learning by listening because we're still transitioning out of that mode. Um, I imagine you know, in a few years um, maybe having a, an initial meeting like this that sort of primed the pump in terms of getting people interested. And then a second sort of meeting where everyone would have read something in advance that got much more into the middle of the things that were sketched in something like the PowerPoint. And, and in the second meeting, we would break into discussion groups. There wouldn't be any single person doing presenting or, or dominating the conversation. There would be a tremendous amount of interaction among the people there. So I, I think that meetings like this are are a good way of getting discussion started, but not a good way of continuing the kind of online community that, that builds knowledge. And we're still learning how to sequence the media together to accomplish that. Chris, there was a question from Eden. Eden, I don't know if you would like to take the microphone. If you would, please go ahead and raise your hand. Otherwise, I can just read it to Chris. Or Chris, you can find it. It's about 10 uh, questions up. There we go. Got a brave soul. Go ahead, Eden. So to speak, you click the microphone button in the audio box. I've given you mic permission. There you go. Give mic permission. There you go. Can you hear me? Yes, we okay, can. I was, yes, we can hear you. <laughs> okay, great. Um, I was just curious to know, you know, teachers are already using some of these newer technologies in the classroom, the Twitter, Facebook, blog, YouTube, etc. Um, what kind of research is being done right now to showcase some of the pros and cons of these technologies, to showcase some of the best practices, who are they benefiting, who are they harming, and if, the, if this research is already being done, where can educators go to find out these results? Uh, I'm happy to hear from others about this point who may know of research. I haven't seen a lot of what I would call true research on these Web2 tools. I think there's a lot of creative design going on. I think there's some kind of evaluation happening where people are trying things and then they're, they're gathering some feedback that gives them a sense of whether it accomplished the goals that they wanted to accomplish or whether there were unexpected side effects or problems. But uh, the research community has been a little slow about how to develop um, models of studying this. And I'm, I'm hoping we'll start to see some more principled research uh, with large enough samples that we can generalize from it over the next few years. Ben, did you want to ask a question? Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, Chris, picking up on that, um, to what extent do you believe that some of that research or that lack of research or the difficulty with the research is more because there's been a focus on the tools and less on a congruence within the community for uh, a central pedagogy. I see a lot of disagreement over whether constructivism is a better pedagogy over some of the old sage on the stage which Illuminate replicates that you had talked about. And as such, it brings to mind that maybe we're not in agreement as to a theoretical underpinning, so the research as a result is disconnected. Well, first, I think that you're right that every time 
in the history of learning technologies that a new medium has come about. There are unfortunately a lot of people who focus on the tool as if that were the innovation rather than focusing on the changes in content and pedagogy and human relationships that the tool might catalyze, which are, are really what the innovation is. So for example, from my perspective, and I hope I don't make too many people mad by saying this, a lot of podcasting is just broadcasting audio files. It's stuff that we could do with educational radio two generations ago or things that we could do with tape recorders a generation ago. And because the pedagogy isn't fundamentally changing, that kind of podcasting really isn't going to have a major educational benefit, even though the tool might be kind of neat like an MP3 player. Now there are other kinds of podcasting that are more interactive that I encourage my students to do that I think are powerful. But we always have to look at the content and the pedagogy and the human relationships, it seems to me, in order to be able to, to make sense of this. Now your other point is, okay, when we focus on the pedagogy, we don't agree on what the best pedagogy is. And something that I have written about and um, I'm, I'm certainly happy to share some sources of where that writing is, is that I don't believe there is a single best pedagogy. I think that that's the wrong question because the ways of learning are so diverse that there is no single best way to teach. Some learners learn best from direct instruction. Some learn best from unguided constructivist learning by doing. Some learn best collaboratively. And the way that you learn best may be determined by what day it is or what the subject area is. So I think that um, what we need to do instead of having pedagogy wars is to look at ways of creating blended learning environments with human beings and technologies where there's an umbrella under which an ecology of pedagogies is available. And students navigate to the part of that ecology with some guidance that's going to be valuable and powerful for them. And then we get past trying to find the best pedagogy, but we don't remove the focus on pedagogy. We just think about how to make that umbrella operative. And, and the Web 2 technologies, coupled with things that are more traditional, like Illuminate, I think provide a very interesting umbrella. There's definitely been some resonance with that uh, ecology of pedagogies. Um, Matt asked a question earlier. I'm going to try and move up and find it. Um, Matt asked, what kind of learning differences will emerge in this new learning environment? Will new learning differences emerge? Will it benefit non-traditional school-valued intelligences? And, and I was intrigued by that question because I, I do harbor a little bit of worry about students who um, could potentially get left behind in a different environment. But, but also, um, for me at least, I can say that these new um, pedagogies in, inspired by the technologies fit me very well, and I'm really grateful for them. So um, I didn't mean to detract from from Matt's question there, but did, did, did you want to respond to that, Chris? Well, let me tell you two stories out of my own experience that I think illuminate different aspects of that question. Um, the first deals with my own teaching. 
Uh, I am, in fact, a good teacher. You, you may or may not be able to conclude that based on an Illuminate uh, webcast for an hour, but I, I um, have wonderful classes with my students, and I very seldom lecture in class. Uh, we have rich experiences outside of class, and then we have interpretive discussions inside of class. So it's a kind of guided social constructivism that's the predominant pedagogy. But I also use online. In fact, I deliberately cancel class sometimes so that we can have mediated interactions. And even with you know, three decades of, of learning how to lead effective classroom discussions, the online discussion always has broader participation patterns than the classroom discussion. And that's because some people find their voice in online media. Face-to-face -face is not the gold standard for them. And so I think there is a power to these blended learning environments in which students who, who resonate with face-to-face uh, are able to find their voice in that environment, but students who, who really need an asynchronous environment or who really need a virtual environment to unleash uh, their voice uh, can also be effective. And I think a lot of people who've, who've taught in blended learning environments have had similar experiences. The second story is that about a year and a half ago, I was asked by a private high school in Philadelphia to come down for a couple days and help them think creatively about their future 10 years from now based on 21st century skills, based on the way technology was changing society. And before I went, I said, I'm not going to talk first to the teachers or to the administration or to the parents or to the board. I want to first have a focus group with the students. And before I have a focus group with the students, I want them to do a little survey online. And I grabbed 30 survey items just off of different things online that dealt with technology use and, and how students like to learn. And then when I met with the students at the very beginning for the focus group, I um, picked the items on which there was a bimodal distribution. And I'll give you one example. One of the items said, would you rather do a research paper or a multimedia project? And three students responded, and I'm going to paraphrase what they said. So I'm going to tell you my words, not their words. The first student said, I love research papers and I hate multimedia projects. I'm a linear thinker, so writing is very easy for me. And I don't like to think about how I'm going to say something. I just like to think about what I'm going to say. And so having a fixed style, like with a research paper, just lets me focus on content. She said, I also like to plan my uh, assignments. And so having a fixed length is very useful for me because I can estimate just how long it's going to take me to do this. Second student says, well, I hate research papers, and I love multimedia projects. And again, I'm going to paraphrase. She says, I'm a, I think like a web or a network. And so I find writing very difficult because I have to figure out which links to cut to turn a web into a stream. 
But multimedia gives me the chance to express the full nonlinear nature, the rich interconnections among my ideas. She said, I'm a very creative person, and so how I say something is as important to me as what I'm saying. And so I love multimedia, but I hate things with a fixed style like research papers. And she said, if I get excited about something, I want to go way beyond the minimum assignment. And if I'm not very interested, I want to do the dead minimum. And so a fixed length really doesn't work for me at all. Third student says, well, I think like a video game. And then the bell rang, and I was so frustrated because I wanted you know, two more minutes to deconstruct what she was saying. I suspect she was saying something about situated learning and immersive interfaces like the work that we do with curricula like River City. I'll never really know. Two points about that. That was just three of those students. I don't know how many thinking styles there are out there now. I suspect there are quite a few, and I suspect that ultimately they're neurologically based. So they're not something that's just going to be casually manipulated by how we choose to teach. But the second thing that I would say is that when I was growing up, the only kind of thinking style that was reinforced by technology by media was linear thinking, because all of our media were linear, writing and movies and television and so on. Now, no matter what the thinking style is, teachers are really staring down the barrel of enormous diversity, because kids can find a medium that reinforces whatever way they happen to make sense of the world. And that's a tremendous strength, but it also creates the challenge of creating this umbrella of pedagogies. So I'm sorry to have taken so long with those anecdotes, but I think they illustrate a kind of, of interaction with students that not only I've had, but that more and more teachers are having. So we have about another 10 minutes. Uh, feel free to put a question in the chat or to raise your hand to ask a question. Uh, Chris, I'm guessing you're a fan of uh, Ken Robinson's The Element. Do you know that book? I do, yes. I know that book. Are you a fan, or and is that close to some of the things that you're talking about here? I think it's a way of talking about some of the things that I'm talking about here, but I think we're only beginning to understand the, the richness of of learning and the many different kinds of things that contribute to learning. So we know that the brain shapes learning. And one of my colleagues, Kurt Fisher, heads our mind, brain, and education program at Harvard that gets into a lot of that. We know that the media that people use shape them and shape the way that they like to think. So people develop learning strengths and learning preferences from using Web2 media or using immersive interfaces outside of school environments. We know that uh, what you're good at shapes how you like to learn. Howard Gardner and, and multiple intelligences. Um, so there's just a lot of dimensions of this. And we focused for a long time in education on thinking, on teaching, and on instructional design, and didn't really get much traction. And I think now that we're really recognizing the richness of learning, and we're looking for metaphors like the ecosystem that accommodate richness rather than trying to suppress 
richness. That's where the real power of the technology is going to be. Chris, I don't know if you're noticing in the chat, but there's a significant group of people not wanting there to be a bell to ring this evening. Uh, alas, I have to go get my uh, son from Jim at 9 o'clock, so I'm afraid that there will be a bell that rings. But again, I think, I think one of the kinds of questions we can all ask ourselves is, when we have an initial, dis not discussion like this, because this really hasn't been able to be structured as a discussion, but when we have an initial induction like this that gets people excited and lots of ideas to share and lots of experiences and stories to tell, how do we spontaneously bottom-up create some kind of follow-on? How do we harness the Web 2 tools to accomplish that? I think we're good at taking the first step, but we often don't know how to transition into those later steps. And I think that's going to be important for our developing this beyond kind of an evening's excitement and not wanting it to end into the really extended dialogues but get into the devil and the details and get into the cautions as well as the opportunities and, and let us begin to develop the kind of research that we were talking earlier about wanting to see. So there were a couple of comments uh, about going to Classroom 2.0 or uh, there's a discussion form that, that really the session starts in future of education. What's interesting is I don't think people have really figured that out because they don't, there doesn't tend to be a lot of discussion after these events, and so it's a good thing to think about. Um, Chris, I, I, we're short on time. One thing that you mentioned in the slide deck that really resonated with me because of my interest in open source software was the idea of collaborative social change, of active student participation in culture, not just practicing to participate. Would you be willing to take a minute or two and kind of talk about your feelings related to that? And I'm going to base um, my remarks on the research that we have done with the Alice in Wonderland interface that underlies Second Life or America's Army or World of Warcraft or the online sims where you become a digital person in a virtual world because that does allow a kind of, of co-creation uh, of an environment, uh, co-experience and deconstructing something complicated that's going on it enables a potential shift in identity because it's you doing it, but it's also your avatar doing it. And so you can try on roles that you might not be willing to try on in the real world. And what we found in 10 years of, of doing the River City curriculum to teach science inquiry in middle schools and now in designing virtual ecosystems is a new immersive interface that we're working on to understand its strengths and its limits to complement real ecosystems and to teach complex causality is that identity and autonomy are a really important part of this. They're important for engagement, but they're also important for transfer, which is another kind of huge shortfall between what happens in classroom learning where you get A's on the tests and what happens in the real world where you have no clue as to how to apply that knowledge in a situation that looks different than the test presented. And I think that what's powerful about 
not just the Web 2 tools now, but the immersive interfaces like the online games or like the beginnings of what we're seeing with augmented realities, is that identity and that autonomy create an emotional and social dimension that isn't just different than the intellectual dimension and a way of kind of motivating people to do intellectual things. It really is infused into the intellectual dimension to create a powerful kind of commitment that's intellectual and emotional and social at the same time that's much stronger than any of those three in isolation. Okay, so we're just about out of time. Uh, I'm going to put up the link to the survey while we ask for a final question or two for Chris. Chris, this comes up uh, for you as well. And unfortunately, if you close it down, it will close down. People's filling it out. So if you don't mind leaving that up, um, people can actually fill that out. So uh, we'll do some final Q&A, uh, maybe one time for one more question. Uh, if you would not mind filling out the survey, it really helps us to know um, what we can do to make these sessions better for you. Um, and I'm going to grab the slide deck and go to the very end. So please feel free to raise your hand to grab the mic or put a question in the chat. If I missed a question in the chat, please post it again quickly. Let's go for one more question. Chris, I think we're all wishing that the bell didn't have to ring and are sensitive to the fact that you have to go pick uh, someone up at basketball. So let's give uh, Chris a round of applause. The clapping hand there uh, is a way of expressing your appreciation. Uh, I feel uh, really appreciative just of spending some time with you. I'm grateful for those who have come tonight and uh, helped to participate. Uh, thanks to KnowledgeWorks Foundation and Illuminate. Uh, coming up next week, Michael Wesch on the 26th, Gary Putland, uh, John C.D. Brown, and David Thornburg in June. So, uh, Chris, any final words before you rush off? Um, just that I hope that people will feel free to contact me. Um, my major purpose is to get these ideas out and to get them discussed and to help help have others help me evolve this thinking so that so that ultimately we as a community can help education to improve. Um, I've got syllabi that are open on the web. I've got lots of stuff I've written. There's streaming videos of me giving talks. Whatever you want to mine, uh, send me an email if you don't see something that's helpful and, and you want some advice about how to get to it. Because I, I want to close where I started. I'm more excited about the opportunities now than I've been in over 30 years. I'm also more frightened by some of the threats that we face than I've been in a long time. And only together can we realize the opportunities and overcome the threats. Thanks, Chris. Uh, feel free to just pop out uh, so you can go run your errands. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, I'll post the recording and the PDF of the slide deck uh, later tonight or tomorrow morning early. Uh, please feel free to stay in the chat room for about another 10 minutes. After that, I'll have to kick you out so that the recording will process. Again, thanks, everyone, for being here. And thank you, Chris. Bob, so I'll post the slides on the futureeducation.com page for this event along with the recordings. So they'll be available there.